privilege to be back with you at Charlotte Chapel. Great to see you praying for nations like uh, Tunisia. As you pray for nations like that, as you pray for the goings-on in the world today, I, I hope you'll be encouraged that your prayers are being heard and they're being answered. In my position, I keep receiving uh, amazing stories from inside the Islamic world. So please be assured, God is at work right in the heart of Syria, right in the heart of Iraq and Iran, right in the heart of the ISIS movement. Uh, last year, the summer of last year, an ISIS fighter in Syria began to get visions. He saw a crowd of people worshipping in the dream. And there was a beautiful figure in the center of the crowd, dressed in white. And he was there, worshipping with the crowd. When he woke the next day, he cried out to Allah. He said, is that person in the center Muhammad, or is it Jesus? He went to bed the next night, he had another dream. And as he dreamed... He saw these words, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the ISIS fighter gave his life to Christ and came to a church conference in Lebanon in October of last year to tell the story. Some months later, an ISIS sheikh, one of the leaders of a district ISIS community, came into Lebanon to to, to travel across Lebanon to eventually get to Saudi Arabia. He jumped into a taxi and he asked the taxi man, do you know anywhere in the Lebanon, in Lebanon, where I can get a Bible? He said, I've been teaching jihad, I've been teaching holy war, but I'm tired, I'm sick, I'm fed up of the killings. By the grace of God, the taxi driver knew the home of the missionary, took this ISIS sheikh to the home of a missionary in Lebanon. And the missionary not only gave him a Bible, but led him there and then to Christ. So keep praying. God is hearing and he's answering the cries of his people right in the heart of Islam, right in the heart of ISIS. God is at work. You don't look as half as encouraged as you should. I think that's exciting, exciting information. Well, that's not my subject this morning. I want us to look together at the 51st Psalm. David has enjoyed 17 years of unqualified success. Battle after battle has gone in his favor as he led out his troops in war. Surely, it's time for the king to have a break. So he decides to send out his troops under the army commander Joab, and he stays home for a rest. Enjoying his break at home, his eyes wander and fix on a beautiful woman who is bathing in possibly a not very carefully chosen place. And David's lust is ignited through the indiscipline of his eyes. 
And eye gate is the source, isn't it, of so much sin. Not just sexual sin. Eye gate is the source of so much sin. I wonder if you remember the commitment Job made, expressed in Job 31 and verse 1. I made a covenant, an agreement with my eyes, not to look lustfully at a young woman. David, the man described in the New Testament as the man after God's heart, falls. He falls tragically. He falls swiftly. He's got many opportunities to walk away from the place of temptation, but he takes none of them. G.K. Chesterton wrote, all healthy men, and I think it's true of women as well, ancient and modern, eastern and western, know there is a certain fury in sex we cannot afford to inflame. Well, the fury is certainly blazing in David. He could have walked away when his eyes first fixed on Bathsheba, but he didn't. We're told he sent someone to find out about her. And what did he find out? Well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. David, she's a married woman, married to one of your own soldiers, serving you on the field of battle. Surely, David's going to walk away now. No. Tragic moment. David sends messengers to get her. He's the king. He's abusing his position of power. He's using it for his own selfish ends. Bathsheba is pregnant. Pregnant with David's child. What does he do? He sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Is he going to come clean now? Is he going to confess all? No. David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. You see, He's wanting Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that the child will be considered to be his. And David even sends a gift along with Uriah. But Uriah's an honorable man. He doesn't leave the palace. He sleeps at the entrance with all of David's servants. And David just doesn't understand. He calls Uriah back in. Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah replies, The ark and Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. How could I go to my home and eat and drink and make love to my wife? Now David feels his only alternative is to arrange for Uriah to be killed in battle. It just shows, doesn't it, that the greatest of men are capable of the most despicable deeds. How are the mighty fallen indeed? Well, nine months pass. The baby conceived through that adulterous relationship 
has been born. And David has been living with unconfessed sin in his life throughout that nine-month period. And then Nathan, a prophet and a true friend to David, courageously confronts even the king. And David's confession and repentance is immediate and it's clearly very real. I trust this morning that we've all got friends in our lives. Friends who love us enough to confront us if they need to do so. I trust that we're all wise enough to give permission, even encouragement, for our friends to confront us when they feel we need to be confronted. Well, you can see from the title given to this 51st Psalm that David wrote these painful words after Nathan's confrontation. And I want to develop three very simple points from the psalm. First of all, I want us to see the seriousness of sin in the life of a Christian. And then I want us to look at the agony of living with unconfessed sin. And we'll deal with those two points quite quickly because I want us to concentrate on the third, and that is the ability of God to deal with our sin. So first of all, the seriousness of sin in the life of a Christian. Look at some of the words David uses. Transgressions, verse 1. Iniquity, verse 2. Evil, verse 4. He knows that sin has made him dirty and unclean, as you see in verse 7. It's driven joy and gladness completely out of his life, verse 8. His normally strong, steadfast spirit has been weakened, verse 10. If only he'd thought of all that as he was being drawn towards Bathsheba. But the flame of lust was burning so hot that rational thinking had probably gone out of the window. David recognizes the real horror of his sin. It might have had consequences for him, emotional consequences, spiritual consequences, family consequences, but ultimately he recognizes, as you see in verse 4, against you, God, you only have I sinned. I remember a number of years ago a young man coming to my office when I was working with Operation Mobilization, he was a local Christian guy, I guess in his early 20s, and he'd fallen into sin, and he'd had hit the newspapers. And he sat opposite me and he said, Peter, I've uh, shamed myself, I've shamed my family, I've ruined my career prospects, and he went on and on and on, and I let him go. And when he'd finished, I said, there's one more thing I think you should be saying to me. And he said, well, what's that? I said, well, you haven't mentioned God. Yeah, you've shamed yourself. Yeah, you've shamed your family. Yeah, you've ruined your career prospects. And that's all sad and it's all serious. But what has your sin done to God? What has it done to his glory 
and to his name in this city. And this sin, verse 4, was done, says David, in your sight. Imagine committing a treasonable offense in the court of Queen Elizabeth. Every time we break the commands of God, we do so right in front of his eyes. David appreciates this sin. It's part of a much bigger problem. Surely, he writes, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, I've got a problem and it's my sinful nature. And the sinful nature has been a problem ever since the fall of man. If the river is polluted, the tributaries that flow from that river will be polluted as well. And God's standards, well, they're so high, aren't they? He deserves, writes David, faithfulness even in the womb. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases it, what you're after, God, is truth from inside out. God is looking not just for a public pretense of holiness. He's looking for sincerity, faithfulness, reality within. David is overwhelmed by the seriousness of his sin. And I hope and pray that you and I will appreciate just how serious sin is in the life of a child of God. Read those warning passages in Hebrews, however uncomfortable you might find them. Give them a read in an age when there's a huge emphasis in the church on the grace of God. And that's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful emphasis. But I pray we'll never underplay the seriousness of sin in the life of a believer. Look, secondly, at the agony of living with unconfessed sin. You can almost weep with David as you read his words in verse 3. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. He couldn't get it off his mind. One moment of sinful pleasure, months of heartache, no doubt sleepless nights. It's possible that David was reflecting on this nine-month period when he wrote such psalms as the 32nd Psalm. Let me just read verses 3 and 4 of that 32nd Psalm to you. When I kept silent, probably silent about his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped in the heat of summer. You've got very similar words, haven't you, back here in Psalm 51, where in verse 8 he writes about his bones being crushed. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. In verse 12 he pleads with God, restore my joy. I wonder if you've experienced the strength-sapping, joy-stealing experience of living with unconfessed sin. Well, if you're there right now, or ever find yourself there in the future, 
let me encourage you not to stay there for one further moment. Let's look thirdly at the ability of God to deal with our sin. The seventh verse of this psalm must be one of the most faith-filled statements in the whole of Scripture. We've seen David recognizing the seriousness of his, of his sin, recognizing that the standards of God are so high, adultery, treachery, organizing murder, and yet he writes in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. If you follow down to verse 9, you'll see that David is sure there's a day coming when God will not look on his sins. Even the memory of those sins will be blotted out. So the big question, the big question, is on what could David base such incredible confidence? How could he be so sure that after such dreadful iniquity, he would be seen in the presence of God as whiter than the snow? Well, I want to show you four convictions that David holds on to. And the wonderful news is that those same convictions can be mine. They can be yours today as the people of God. Let's look at them. First of all, David's conviction about God's character. David's God is my God. He's your God. And he's a God, verse 1, of unfailing love. And it's a just love. David recognizes, verse 4, you are right in your verdict. You are justified when you judge. We're looking here at the holy, reliable, utterly consistent character of the God we worship. When my children came to me about various issues as they were growing up, they had every reason to be uncertain. My response to them, at least to some degree, would depend on how I was feeling on the day. But God isn't like that. He doesn't change like shifting shadows, writes the Apostle James. He's not one thing today and another thing on Monday. There's an utter reliability in God. You know what you're going to get when you come to him. You're going to get righteous love. Many Christians, especially probably those from a more conservative background, tend to emphasize the righteousness of God at the expense of his love. Charles Swindle wrote this, Many Christians, in my experience, live their lives as though they expect to be examined by God once a year. God stands there frowning with his hands stuck in the pockets of his robe. Swindle adds, it's interesting how many people when they think of God, they have a mental image of God, they think of God in a robe, the robe of a judge. It's true, isn't it? Your mental image of God probably has never been of God in shorts. The word translated compassion in verse 1 is an emotional term. 
It speaks of the tender warmth of the love of God. Never forget, never forget that when Jesus introduces his father to us with that magnificent story of the prodigals, it's a running, hugging, kissing father who throws a party for his returning son who has just completely blown it. David's hope in the middle of his agonizing darkness, his hope is the character of the God he worships. Secondly, he has a conviction about God's covenant. The words unfailing love in verse 1 are covenant words. For all his sinfulness, David's conviction is that God's covenant with him is not based on David's performance. It's based on God's grace. Going back to the prodigal, he wanted to say to his father when he got home, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Servants in the eastern home would be barefoot. And the father says, get the sandals, get the sandals. This is still my son. After all he has done, nothing can break that relationship. The covenants of God are as unshakable as the character of God. My favorite hymn writer, Scottish hymn writer, Horatius Boner, expressed it beautifully. The clouds may go and come. The storms may sweep my sky. But this blood-sealed friendship changes not. The cross is ever nigh. Here's David. No words of excuse, no words of mitigation. Just have mercy on me because of your character and because of your covenant. Look at a third conviction. And that concerns God's ability to cleanse. As I've said, these words of verse 7, I shall be whiter than snow. They're a terrific faith statement. How could that be? Cleanse me, he says, with hyssop, and I will be clean. Leviticus 14 gives instructions for the cleansing of a leper. The leper was to be sprinkled seven times with the sacrificial blood into which a bunch of hyssop was to be dipped as a sprinkler. You'll remember that Israel had to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the lintel and the doorposts of their homes by using a bunch of hyssop. This was the means God had provided for cleansing. David's hope was the blood of sacrifice being applied to him. And so it is with me this morning. So it is with you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I'll wholly lean 
on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood will support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In Christ and in his sacrificial death, God has provided fully and completely the means to deal with all of my sin, and not just my sin, all of the shame of my sin as well. We read earlier from 1 John. John is longing for holiness in the lives of his readers. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. That's John's great passion. I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does fall, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's Jesus Christ. The righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And of course, a little earlier in verse 7, he'd written, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And, terrific, terrific words, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us. The original tense is, goes on purifying us from all or from every sin. Brothers and sisters, there's no sin which is not included in this statement. No sin which is too awful. No sin you've, con you've, you've committed too often. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, goes on purifying us. From all, from every sin. And of course, David himself could write in Psalm 103, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget his benefits who forgives all your sin. So when you're feeling condemned or ashamed, who are you going to, be who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe Satan who says, This time you've gone too far. This is unforgivable. Or are you going to believe God? Who is in, in his word says, the blood of Christ, my son, cleanses the sins of all who come to me seeking forgiveness. David was convinced. He was coming to a God of compassion who was committed by covenant to him and had provided the means to cleanse him even from these most dreadful sins. But briefly, notice a fourth conviction. And that is the conviction of God's ability to restore. David is looking to God for more than forgiveness. Look at the words in verse 10. Create, renew. Look at the word in verse 12. Restore. David is thinking back to those days, months before. Days when he knew the presence and the joy of God. Days when he woke up in the morning feeling spiritually strong, ready for the day ahead, eager to be up and doing God's will. But it hadn't been that way for the past nine months. Joy was history. His spiritual strength had gone, to use the words of that 32nd Psalm, it had been sapped as in the heat of a summer day. 
But he believed those days of joy and strength could, indeed would, return. He was not expecting to be forgiven and placed on the shelf, damaged goods. He's looking for the day when, verse 13, he will teach transgressors your ways. He will now be able to do that, of course, from both bitter and wonderful personal experience. He's known major transgression. He's felt major sorrow and regret. But he's experienced major, indeed, outrageous grace and forgiveness. Here's a man with something very personal and very real to now teach others. The horror of sin in the life of a believer. The torment of living with it unconfessed. The wonder of the mercy and the forgiveness of our Father. Now I realize that for someone this morning this might be a very sensitive subject. Dealing with sin can be very difficult, sometimes utterly traumatic. It may involve, for example, going to other people you've sinned against or have been affected by your sin. Not saying this is easy. I'm just saying the grace of God is available and it's wonderful. Sometimes the experience can be so difficult of dealing with sin that it's good to find somebody you trust. And ask that person to walk the road with you as you deal with unconfessed sin. But what's the alternative? The alternative, of course, is to continue to have your walk with God damaged, your joy and your freedom curtailed. So let's close with the first two verses of that 30-second psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Let's pray together.